you know, what's more important, location, movement, velocity, command. And, and ours was number one is velocity. Number two is velocity. Number three is velocity. And, and the reason we, we say that is because we've never had a kid that threw 80 to 82 that went on and got a college scholarship. What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date baseball coaching strategies for player and coaching development. I am Jonathan Gellner. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Defiance High School head coach, Tom Held. Coach Held gives us a snapshot of what their program looks like, and if I had one word to describe it, I'd use velocity. He walks us through their underload and overload throwing program that he built by accident and has been using for over 23 years. Player development is the cornerstone of the Defiance program, as evidenced by their numerous Major League alumni. You better have your notebook out for this one with Coach Tom Held. Coach Held, thank you for being on Ahead of the Curve. Hey, thanks a lot, Jonathan. appreciate the uh, an honor to be on here. Like I said, I've listened to some of your podcasts, and, and I've, I've learned picked up some things from you, and, and I love what you're doing. I always love young, energetic guys like you, so this is this should be fun. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad that you uh, have had a chance to listen to a couple of episodes. And, and knowing you and knowing Rick Weaver, I, I knew that you would be a perfect guest for the show. But for our listeners who might not know a little bit about your background, can you tell us about your background and how you got into coaching? Well, it, uh, you know, it's, 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 kind of a, it's kind of a crazy story. I grew up uh, in a real small, I went to a Catholic grade school of about 14 in a class. Went there for eight years, went to a small high school. We had the largest graduating class. There were 75 in our class, small, the town of a size of about 800. And uh, grew up really, really loving basketball. That was always my number one sport. And uh, But I came from a baseball family. My father played 13 years of pro ball from 46 to 59 in the St. Louis Browns and Baltimore Orioles organization. Uh, he was a pitcher. So, you know, baseball was always number one. Uh, in our family, my older brother, he's 11 years older. He was a high school baseball coach, a head coach. So I was always, and all my cousins were all big baseball families. So we've always talked baseball, but my first love was always basketball. And uh, I was uh, I was okay, nothing great. I wasn't a D1 athlete. Uh, and, and back then, you just, you know, you, you in our area, you just kind of played baseball to play in the spring. And I went into went to a small college, Defiance College, actually the town I live in, to play basketball. Uh, was there and and actually my first year, my freshman year after basketball, the baseball coach asked me to come out and me and my uh, roommate uh, were both uh, basketball players and we went out for one day and said, ah, this isn't for us. So I actually walked away from baseball uh, after my after one day of freshman year in college. And then my sophomore year, uh, I decided to, uh, I played basketball again. Things didn't go as well for me as I thought. So the head coach approached me Again, my sophomore year. Actually, I want to go back a little bit. After my freshman year, a good friend of mine by the name of Todd Long, who was a year younger than me in high school, said, hey, you want to go down to a Cincinnati Reds showcase? I go, I was in Bowling Green, about 45 minutes from home. And I go, sure, I always wanted to see how hard I could throw. And there, were, there was no such thing as radar guns back in 1980, uh, except if you went to a tryout. And I was playing slow pitch softball and open gyms in the softball and in the summer, as well as working. So I went down and remember we threw and at the end of the uh, camp, scout said, uh, read off the numbers they'd like to stay uh, and throw again. And they read my number. And I thought, huh, that's crazy. <laughs> and at that point, I still didn't know how hard I was throwing. So 
kept me afterwards. And uh, I think, I, I don't know, but back then it was the ray guns instead of the jugs. Then I went to the stalker. And I think I hit like 87 or 88 on the, on the ray gun. And I, I guess I was pretty good at that point. I didn't really know if it was or not. So anyways, my sophomore year, I could play basketball. Like I said, things didn't go real well. Head coach approached me again. Uh, he was actually at that camp and said, you got to come out for baseball again and pitch. So I went out. I think I threw 10 innings my sophomore year. I, only threw, I threw like three games in my high school career, my senior year. I threw some in Little League, but I was barely, mainly a shortstop. So I went out, and then I get this letter at the, in the end of spring by the Reds inviting me back to this same showcase. So I went back, and they kept me again. And then afterwards, about a couple of days later, they called me and invited me down to Riverfront Stadium. And you're talking about a guy here that had thrown three games in his high school career and 10 innings in his college career, and I'm going to Riverfront for a tryout uh, after my sophomore year. So I go down there, and there are about 10 of us there. And uh, for the old-timers, they'll remember a guy by the name of Tim Belcher. Uh, he was there. He's from Mount Vernon, Nazarene. Actually, we played them in college, another uh, D3 school. Actually, I think we were NAI at the time. And uh, threw down there. Things went well. So my junior did not play basketball. Matter of fact, I didn't even make the team. I went from starting part of the season my sophomore year to now making the basketball team. So my career changed. I said, well, I might as well try this baseball thing a little more serious. So I went out for baseball my junior year. I had a pretty good year. And in June, I get drafted in the 20th round by the Tigers. So in about 18 months of not even thinking or interested in baseball, I was all of, a, all of a sudden I was in Bristol, Tennessee, uh, in the Tiger organization. Wow, um, and yeah, and it's so spent three years there, and uh, matter of fact, uh, roomed with Carl Willis, who's now again back with the Cleveland Indians, mm-hmm. pitching coach. Roomed him for, with him for a while that first year, and uh, another good friend of mine down there in Houston, Alex Garcia, and from Houston. But uh, anyway, so got three years, got done playing pro ball, got released, and. Came back and I got my education degree, wanted to be a high school head basketball coach. And at that point, I still want basketball was still my first love. And so I get I end up getting a teaching job. I become an assistant baseball coach, freshman basketball. I I spend uh, three years at Elmwood High School, a small high school. And then uh, I had student taught at another school locally. I get a call from them and it was uh, the principal. And he said, hey, we have a head baseball job opening. Our head football coach is the head baseball coach. He said, if you take it, he'll step down from the baseball job. So I go, and I, it was closer to home, and it was a good, good sports school. So I said, yeah, I'll take it. Uh, so I came back, more local. And uh, my first year as the head coach at Bryan, I had three years of being a head coach at Elmwood High School previously. And did not have a lot of success. Didn't really work at it. I still want to be a basketball guy. Just kind of coach to coach. And I go back to Brian, and our first year, we make it to the Final Four. And we had a good group of kids, and my passion for baseball started then. I go, this is a lot easier than basketball. <laughs> I go, this is really easy. And obviously, we know it isn't, but I was young and naive at the time, and that's when uh, baseball really took off for me. And so then uh, my past, my background of really not playing much baseball, not pitching much, but I always had a good arm, and, and, there, and that kind of will lead to our throwing program probably a little later in the show. But I, I knew in those three years of playing pro ball, I knew there were guys back in our area that were as good as these guys I was playing with. 
And so when I came back, my mission was to really inform our, the kids in our area that, hey, you can make it in this game and, and practice a little bit. You can, you can go D1. You might be able to get drafted. And so that's really what, what my philosophy in baseball has been for, my, for the 30 years I've been coaching. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome. So tell us about your last stop at Defiance. How did you get there? And, and tell us a little bit about what a Defiance Bulldog looks like. <laughs> well, uh, I spent eight years at Bryan, the school where I, where I developed the passion for baseball, a great baseball town. And uh, I, I got to be honest, I had a little, we had, it was a great place to teach, great place to coach. The superintendent of our school had a little different philosophy on, on athletics. It really, athletics started to change at that school. And I remember my father always saying, you know, you should never be one to complain about something. If you don't like it, you need to go do something else or, you know, look for another job. And Defiance was actually our rival hmm. at that time. And the head coach there who had, who had built the program here at Defiance, who'd been there 18 years, he had two sons growing up, and they lived in a different school district, and he decided to go watch his kids, so he got out of Defiance. And I came over and interviewed, and fortunately, I got the job, and, and that's where it all started here at Defiance. And, and like I said, the program was really good. Greg Inselman was the head coach. He built this program from scratch. And now I got to come in and try to keep this thing going. And, and that was a great challenge. And, and so uh, I guess that kind of pushes you. We had a great football coach at the time by the name of Jerry Beauty, who was, is still the hardest worker I've ever been around. He's our athletic director presently. And he's a guy that you see a guy work as hard as he does. It kind of carries over the rest of the coaches and it carried over for me. And how many years have you been to or at Defiance? I just finished my 19th. So we'll be going into okay. 20 years here at Defiance. And, and it's Defiance, not Defiance. It can be whatever. Okay. We, uh, okay. uh, defiance, def- that's one thing, you know, it's kind of funny when you live here and people around here, they don't think much of it. But ever we say we're from Defiance, everyone always loves that name. Oh, man, what a great name for a town, Defiance. So, <laughs> so well, that's well, awesome. I, guess, yeah, I guess so. All right. So take us through what you guys do in the fall. You know, this, uh, this show is about player development and you guys do a fantastic job of developing the talent that you've got. But what does a typical week look like for you guys in the fall? You know, really, we do not do a lot in the fall. You know, it, it, it kind of comes and goes each year. For years, we really, that was kind of our downtime, uh, September and October. And because we play our, in, in Ohio, in our area of Ohio, we have a league called ACME, which is a summer league. So as soon as our spring league ends, we go, we take our next year's team and play in the summer and we stay together. So August is our dead time for the state. And so then September and October, we would kind of give uh, downtime. You know, some guys wanted to come out and do some things they did, but nothing really major. Uh, it was about, oh, probably it was 2008. We had a, a player by the name of Dace Kime uh, who went on to pitch at Louisville, is now uh, in the Cleveland Indians organization, and he was a basketball guy. So he could not do any of our winter workout stuff or any of our throwing program in the winter and so on. So I kind of started with him, and we went until basketball started. And what happened from there kind of evolved a few more guys coming out, and actually a bunch of area guys coming out. We, we just It was free. I just We'd go out three mornings in the summer, uh, whoever wanted to come, and, and, and carry on there. Now, for example, and like you said about fall, our fall program, there is nothing real organized. And, and to this day, like three years ago, though, we had like 25 kids that we're not in a fall sport. So we did a, we, we did some, we did one of those, you know, like the colleges, a little world series, we'd call it the blue and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only, we'd only done that one year because of numbers like this fall, we only have nine kids in our program 
that that we're not in a fall sport. So we basically just have we open it up for an hour. They want to get some hitting in, maybe some ground balls, but really nothing nothing major. Well, tell us about your throwing program. It's it's come up twice already, and I know that that's a it's a huge staple and something that you guys do. So take us through that. Well, the throwing program now kind of goes back to when I was younger. In my senior year in high school, I graduated in 1980, and there were no summer jobs. And so, uh, you know, there was nothing to do. So a buddy of mine and I, we would uh, go out to his garage, and we got a, a gas grill, and we'd lay a carpet remnant, uh, hang a carpet, carpet remnant down from the gas grill, and we'd have a Nerf ball and PVC pipe. And we would... Uh, uh, we would we would play there, I don't know, three hours, two, three hours at a time and, and throw in Nerf balls. And I would always throw the Nerf ball as hard as I could. And he'd be throwing curveballs and, and, and junk and everything. And, and in the meantime, I was playing slow pitch softball. And I always, always had a pretty good arm. And I'd always throw that. So when I got into coaching, it was actually then I'd been into coaching a few years. And I always believed in long toss. And, a lot, and actually, I re, I'll still recall not to to keep jumping around but I remember going down with a group of guys to a Cincinnati Reds game as soon as I got done playing ball we actually went to a a bar restaurant where the radio show for the Reds pregame was going on and they had a question answer and I asked the question question does do the Cincinnati Reds long toss and the actual broadcasters had no idea what long toss was and this was 1986 and a lot of people really didn't know what long toss was. Um, so anyways, in the throwing program in 1995, we had a freshman by the, Nate, by the name of Nate Smith. This was back at Bryan High School. And I kind of put together the, you know, I threw a Nerf ball. I was throwing a softball and a baseball. So really I was doing overload and underload, over, overload and underload accidentally. And so I, he's this, Nate was a basketball player and he had a pretty good breaking ball, but he threw like 65 mile an hour as a freshman and he didn't have a very good arm. And so he won, he was a kid that really wanted to get better. So I said, you know what, we're going to try something, Nate, we're going to have you, we're going to have you throw a softball, a tennis ball and a baseball. And we're going to do sets of those. And I want you to do it in your net at home. And he religiously did this in the offseason during basketball for three years. And when he was a senior, he was throwing 91, 92, and he went to high State. And so he was the first guy, and I made me a believer. So really, we kind of jokingly with him, he's in, in pharmaceutical sales now, and we always joke, I said, it's the Nate Smith throwing program. <laughs> so ever since then, we've been doing the, the softball, tennis ball, baseball, and, and uh so I guess, you know, the old weighted balls, overload, underload, we've been doing this now for uh, 22, 23 years, and it, it really does work. Wow, that's awesome. Is there a, uh, an amount that you guys do as far as sets and reps go? Yeah, um, we'll start off, let's say, we'll start here uh, November 7th, and uh, we'll, do a, we'll do the softball. For example, we'll build up to 72 throws, and we'll start off with uh, six softballs, and we go through our, our throwing series. We do what we call our, uh, just our torso throw, basically a quick arm throw. They'll do six softball in the net. And then they'll do the torso again with six tennis ball. And then they'll go to our power prey position, throw six baseball. And then we'll go to our uh, power with arms, back leg through, back with the softball. Then six tennis ball with the, our load and go. And then we crow hop six baseballs. And then we'll build up to sets of 12 
uh, within about a month, and then they're going to be throwing 72 throws in the net. And obviously, in Ohio, we can't long toss in the winter, so we've been always throwing the nets. And, uh, you know, we have it down where uh, you can get about 72 throws done in about 13 minutes. And so it really doesn't take a lot of time, and you're still building arm strength. But more important than building velocity, you know, we have so many kids that, that play winter sports. They come in. Our winter sport goes right into baseball. Their arms are not in shape. It takes four to six weeks. And so this allows those kids to not, when they come in, they're ready to pitch uh, when the season starts. Well, that's un- unbelievable. And I, and I know that's uh, innovation at its best, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I guess so. It's, it's kind of accidental. And, and uh, little did we know that, you know, we just, you just try different things and a lot of things work, a lot of things don't work. And, and we've really stuck with that even through, you know, we do a lot of the driveline stuff now. And I've, I've always believed in the thing. I, I'm not a big believer in throwing heavy balls. So softball is seven ounces. Uh, baseball obviously is five. And a tennis ball is a little less than three. So we've always stuck with, with that. I don't like, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big believer. Uh, I, I, I just a little more scared throwing a much heavier than seven ounces, especially with full intent. I understand. So when do you guys get your players out for preseason practices you you mentioned that they all almost all play uh winter sports so what's the first day that you guys really start as a team well and i shouldn't say when i say uh, all of them play a lot of our pitchers do but as far as we'll start our winter workouts november 7th and then we'll go to what we used to have pitchers and catchers a two weeks there uh two week uh segment for pitchers and catchers in ohio uh that was eliminated about four years ago and that's usually middle of february uh, now it's just open practice from the day from day one of middle of February. So we have like five weeks of practice until our first game. Uh, we we still really like when we would when we were doing pitchers and catchers, we would literally be there for two hours and throw for two hours, all different things. And, and people say you threw for two hours, and I go, yeah, we threw for two hours. <laughs> and 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 uh, and then we we really we throw probably more than anyone I've ever run into. I mean, that's kind of, we, we, and I always think, you know, so many times uh, I've always had the belief that we don't throw enough and we pitch too much. And I really believe in that, uh, especially nowadays with year round baseball. So then we just, it carries us into our season. Then we just go into our normal practice once that happens. And when does that start? That will be, uh, once again, now it all starts middle of February uh, with our regular practice. But we'll focus more on our throwing. But we'll do everything now. We'll do, you know, your hitting, your infield, your outfield, your base running, all this in middle of February. It'll all start. Now, how's the weather up there in the middle of February? Not good. So <laughs> okay. It's actually not good the entire spring. Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe by May, uh, you'll get some decent days. You'll get a You'll get a week in... April or March is, you know, you might get some 60s. Uh, but for the most part, when we start our season outside, we're, it's 40, it's in the 40s. Uh, and that's when the games start time to time that gets over. Sometimes you're down below freezing. So we don't rarely, now we were very fortunate here in the last year, we got a brand new field, turf, full turf field. So it was unique for us last year. We had a mild winter, so we were out on the turf earlier. In the past years, we would be, have our first, usually our first scrimmage, we'd usually go down to Dayton or Cincinnati two, three hours south. They're about 10 degrees warmer at that time of the year, eight to 10. And our first time outside many, many years would be our first scrimmage. So we're not used to being on the field until game one on our home field. And that's pretty much the norm in Ohio. The northern, the northern Ohio. We're in northern Ohio. 
That makes sense. I, I'm extremely jealous of the turf field. I know I get tired of tamping dirt and moving moving dirt around and, and cutting grass and all that different stuff. So so extremely jealous. I don't know about the temperatures, but but I know that having a turf field it would be awesome. Yeah, it really is. And and I love taking care of ball fields, but I got to be honest, after doing it for 30 years, it is, it's really, really nice to walk out and see everything ready to go. And more importantly, the, the setup, the teardown, the field maintenance, you were, we were losing, you know, 45 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. So our normal practice would be three hours. We're really only practicing about 2.15. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so now we can get tons done and, and be done in two and a half hours. And, and also, we for years until we got a new hitting facility, too, uh, one of our former alumni, John Neese, uh, is with the Mets and then spent a year with the Pirates. And he'll probably be back. He had knee injury set out this year. Uh, but he uh, wrote us a check for 500000 18 months ago and built us an indoor hitting facility. So we had one batting cage for all the years, for our 18 or 19 years that Rick and I have been here. And now we have six cages. And we get the, it got done right in the middle of the season last year. We really didn't know what to do with six. We found ourselves using one and two. So that is our goal this offseason to figure out how we're going to be able to incorporate all six cages. But I think we'll be able to figure it out. I think that's a pretty good problem to have. Absolutely. So there's a couple of things that, that I love to ask coaches about, and one of them is how do they build competition into practices? So do you guys have anything creative that you guys do to promote that? You know, we, we try to make everything competitive. We actually, in the in their offseason, we, we, we try to chart everything. For example, you know, how many med ball med balls we do in 30 seconds, push-ups in a certain amount of time, sit-ups in a certain amount of time, pull-ups in a certain amount of time. Uh, so we chart everything and we compete all winter long. And then during the season for practices, some, some of the things we do is we, we invested uh, one of the best. We're a big radar gun is our Bible. So we've been using a radar gun. We were using a radar gun. I bought a radar gun back in the mid-90s and no one had a radar gun. I remember when I first came to Defiance, I had the, brought the radar gun and people over here were like, why do you, have, why do you need a radar gun? And, and uh, it's, it's kind of, we use it all the time. For example, then we bought, uh, we got the stalker. And we got an LED screen. So after we take BP, we'll, we'll choose up into two teams and uh, we'll do a point system on exit velo. Uh, if it's 80 mile an hour, exit velo, you get a point. 85 is two points. 90 is three points. And we'll play a seven inning game. Losers have to do run hallway laps or, or something. So that's that's one way of competition, we, what we do with our hitting. In the off season. After every day, after we do our throwing sequence, our softball, tennis ball, baseball, we'll line them up and they'll they'll compete on how hard they can throw. They'll crow hop. Uh, Drive line calls it pull downs. We call it just crow hop. Uh, they'll compete there. They're competing against themselves, trying to outdo themselves. And we chart everything. We put everything on a whiteboard. We chart all that. And that's another way of competition that we create. Uh, one of our best things I think we really do is we play in our practices, which we, in Ohio, we really do not get a practice a lot once the season starts because our season is 42 days long and we have 27 games. Oh, wow. And that's not counting mm-hmm. Sundays. So take out six Sundays. Now you have 32 days for 27 games. Mm-hmm. And in our area, we cannot play on Wednesday nights. They call it church night. So we cannot play games that we have to be done at six o'clock. So now if you take five or six Wednesdays away, we have 30 days to play 27 games. So you see there's not a lot of practice time. Sure. Uh, but what we do is we play a game called three-way. And I, everything we've done, we do for the most part, as most coaches and all, probably all coaches say, we've, stole, we've stolen everything. And I remember a guy from California, 
came in. Uh, he actually played at Cal State Fullerton. He moved up here for a couple of years, and he said they always played three-way. And, I, and basically, you just get into three teams of five or six guys, and then you, and you play live. I would throw, I throw live. And we play and losing teams run or whatever. And, and that they actually we found out we've had some teams that actually competed hard in our harder in our three way than they did in the games. Like they would be more ticked off if they lost three way or more happy when they won a three way game. So competition has always been huge, huge to me. And I think one reason is because of my basketball background and in basketball, you're always competing at practice. Baseball is such a skill sport. Basketball is, too. But. You know, you can be, get caught up in just taking ground balls and fly balls and base running, and it can it becomes boring. Kids like to play, and and the more you can compete and play live, we we believe is better. Now that makes sense. And and another question that always comes up, and and just everyday comp or uh, everyday conversations with other coaches is how do they build leaders or just team building exercises in their programs? Do you guys have uh, any creative ways that you do that? You know, that's, that's a great question. We do not have captains. We've never had captains. Um, our seniors are kind of our captains, and they'll evolve. But, you know, our leaders, we really have leaders uh, that, that change throughout the year. Our leader in our winter workouts, when we're working out, uh, a lot of times they won't end up being our leaders during the season, but they're, they're tremendous workers. And they kind of take over, and they become like the captains of the groups uh, there. We get to the season. And uh, it may change. One one dilemma that you have in baseball that you have in very few sports, we'll be with our guys from November to middle of February and with the same group of guys. And then our winter sport guys will slowly cycle in when their winter season gets done. Uh, for example, in, in 2015, our team won the state basketball championship. And they were not done. They finished on Saturday, the state championship. Our first game was supposed to be that Saturday. And it was that Monday. So that now you have a whole other dynamic of more guys coming in. And now they're going to, they do not feel comfortable, even though they've been in your program, they haven't been with you. So now it may take time and they may be your leader. They were your leader last summer and last spring, but now that takes time. So we really have have been a program where leaders kind of just kind of evolve. We don't, I don't think you can dictate and tell uh, this guy's going to be your leader, your captain. And, And it's, it's worked out pretty well. Well, that's awesome. Coming from a program or talking to a guy with a program who's had several guys drafted, a couple of guys in the big leagues, and it sounds like you guys put a huge priority on individual development within the team setting. So do you guys have any, you know, just coaching hacks for us to do that? I know it's something that I struggle with as well of trying to develop the player and trying to make the team better at the same time. Can you help us with that? Yeah, I think, uh, as we always say, our off-season stuff is for the individual. And, and that's for them to get better. I really believe that we probably have a, a much higher focus on individual development, development than we do team development. Now we do, we'll do some, we do a lot of team stuff, uh, overnight stays or, or good team chemistry things. Uh, but we, our really main focus is individual development. You know, we've done different, uh, I think one of the, the greatest, uh, is whenever you can go away and spend the night in a hotel, and have the kids have to be together for three, four days. Uh, that is, that's that's probably the number one, uh, the greatest thing you can do for team development. Uh, and we make them each night. They, they have to. They have, the next morning they have to uh, clean up their rooms, and then we change rooms. So they're going to stay with different guys each night. Uh, they're not going to stay with the same four. I make up. I decide where they go. They don't choose where they're going to go. Uh, I think that's a team. 
uh, Team Unity deal. Another thing that we do that with uh, with Team Unity is we do not allow headphones, and we never have. Uh, our team has uh, comes up with a playlist of songs, and and that obviously it's a lot tougher for them to come up with songs nowadays that are baseball appropriate or clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so they come up with a playlist, we okay it, and then we will play that playlist every single day. Uh, during BP, they hear the same 22 songs every single day. When we go on bus trips, we, we, they don't have headphones. They have, they, we take a, uh, we have what we call a tailgater. We put on the bus and we listen to the music all the way to the game on the bus, the same songs. We get on the bus coming back from the game. We listen to the same music. I think that, uh, develops a bond. They, they, they can't just put their headphones in and sit there by themselves. You know, they have to communicate. They have to talk. And I think that's big. Uh, especially big nowadays. Like I said, we've been doing that for 25 years. But uh, um, And that was just something a player, when I was at Brian, actually when Rick was on our team, Rick was a former player of mine, they came up with a playlist in 1991. And uh, and we did it on a, we were going to the state tournament and they wanted to play this music. And so we played it and I've been doing it ever since. And, and so I think that's another uh, great way of, of, of little things with, with team bonding. I think we do not allow anyone to call uh, their player, their teammates by their last name. Uh, they all have to use a nickname or, or a first name. People say, why you do that? And I go, well, I always, we really encourage our, our players to be our coaches and we're there to just help them. You know, we kind of tell them, we're, we're your advisors. We'll kind of guide you the way. It's your team. And, and it's important that you take the responsibility to help your teammates. And, you know, for example, if a kid isn't doing something right, uh, you just say, hey, Jimmy, you need to get going here. It's not as bad as saying, hey, Smith. And, and it's just, you know, just something little. But we've been we've we have allowed last names. It's kind of funny because we may get a new kid, a freshman or something. I use a last name in, in winter workouts and you'll hear the seniors. Whoosh, quiet, quiet. Don't use that. And because they drop down, they do 20 push ups. And nice. and now they all kind of know the rules over time of, of what we do there. And, you know, another thing I think we do and not to keep talking about different things, but no, I really I believe these are great team chemistry and all these things I've stolen uh, from different people. The another one is uh, we every day after practice before they leave, uh, they line up and they have to shake our hands, all the coaches, and then they get to the end of the line and then they have to uh, shake or fist bump their teammates. They they have to shake the coach's hands. You know, it's amazing how tough it is for a kid nowadays to shake a hand firmly and look you in the eye. Uh, and the whole purpose of that is, you know, if you did get on a, uh, one of your players during practice, you know, you're going to leave on a positive. You're going to shake their hand. You can read them. Maybe if they put their head down, you know, there's a problem. There's a chance you can keep them after practice. Discuss that issue. Uh, and, and now it's kind of funny because our alumni come back. First thing they do when they come to the classroom, come to our practice, come to our dugout, they come right up, shake our, shake our hand, give us a hug and greet us. And, and, uh, and that, once again, just little things with 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 that that really goes a long way. Another thing we've done, I picked this one up. We do attaboys after every game. If we're at home, once the once we get our field work done, the opposing team is gone. Then we'll sit down and and give attaboys. And and so one of the players may you know say uh, attaboy to to Nick. He went from first to third on a base hit to right field and end up scoring. He go attaboy Nick. And then the whole team will go, attaboy, Nick. <laughs> and we just kind of go around. And, and then sometimes we'll be there for a while because 
They all want to kind of involve everyone. And it can be as much as chasing foul balls, getting an attaboy for that, or, or you know, hustling out. It doesn't have to be a hit a home run in the bottom of the seventh or through a no-hitter. It could be any little thing. And so they're, they're all getting affirmations, uh, and I think that really brings a bond because it's very hard for kids to compliment each other. Sure. So this kind of forces their hand, and then they start to like it. So those are some examples of different things we've done for, with team chemistry. No, I love those. And, and the attaboys from, you know, like you said, a, a player means just as much or more than it might from coming from a coach. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it, what's important with the attaboys is, you know, you have to look at them, you have to call them by name, and you have to be specific on what their attaboy was. You just can't say, hey, attaboy did a good job on something. And, and uh, it, it hits home more. Now, is there anything else unique that is really just unique to Defiance that you guys do that you don't think anybody else in the country does? Well, there, there are a few things. One thing that stands out is we really, we really try to market our, our kids in our program. We have what we call the 90 Club. And uh, we started this at Defiance. Well, it was probably uh, Chad Billingsley was our first 90 Club guy. And, and it, so if they get... They hit 90 mile an hour in a game at least twice. They get on our 90 club sign, and the 90 club sign is posted at our ballpark. It's a big sign. They 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 really get into that, and that that's once again it goes back to our whole program's always been about throwing hard, and and so that's kind of unique. We haven't run across any other ballparks we've gone into that see a sign that says 90 club. So I, I think that's pretty unique uh, from that standpoint. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there. I may uh, be texting my head coach right now and, and asking him if we can steal that because I love that idea. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, I saw on Twitter you guys put a ton of stuff on social media, which it's a lot of fun to uh, to follow Rick. You not as much, no you know, no offense. But, <laughs> Rick's, but Rick Rick's puts our social a, media captain. There's no doubt about that. Right, and he puts a ton of stuff out. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is you guys had a really unique curveball drill that you were doing the other day. and. And I'll also I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But can you take us through what you guys were doing with that? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. We do okay. curveball drills, and and Mac, it's kind of funny because we're kind of known known for our, our breaking ball, and and actually a lot of scouts when they see a good curveball, a lot of times they say that's a, that a defiance curveball. Matter of fact, just this uh, past week down in Jupiter, one of my my uh, our alumni is a, an agent, and he was down at Jupiter. And he was standing there talking to uh, a scout, and guy asked him, "Hey, where are you from?" And he said, oh, "I'm from a from a small town in in, Defi- in Ohio, Defiance." He goes, "Oh, Defiance!" He goes, "The Defiance curveball." And and uh, so and and all this really happened was uh, I watched a video. Of Greg Olson and his dad had a video back in the '90s. Man, it might have been older. That might have been the '80s. Uh, but I watched this. Probably started doing this in the mid '90s. And it's just the curveball drills. And we use a lot of the ones that, uh, that Greg Olson has on his DVD. And I believe his father's name is Bill Olson, I believe. I may be wrong on that. But, uh, and so we've been doing the, we do curveball drills. And, and the thing is what I like about the curveball drills, it's, it's all on our DVD too. We have like four different drills. And you can literally do curveball drills for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And there's, does, there's no harm at all to your arm. You're not getting on the mound. You're not, you know, if you go through a, uh, curveballs for 20 straight minutes off the mound, uh, you're probably not going to be able to pick up your arm the next day. Uh, so those those are some things that we uh, we really believe in. Our you know we always tell our kids we can teach you how to spin it, 
and you're going to na- have a nasty hammer, you're going to have to figure out how to throw it across the plate, and, and that's up to you. Well, that's awesome. Uh, one of my favorite things to ask, uh, especially head coaches, is just what do you wish you had known before becoming a head coach? Yeah. I have aspirations of becoming a head coach someday, and, and so I, I love asking this question, especially to someone who has, uh, who's been a head coach for a long time. And uh, so what do you wish you had known before you took your first head coaching job? A lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things. But, uh, you know, I think the, the best part about, well, one thing that I tell all our young guys, uh, young coaches, guys going into the game, I think the most important thing is, especially in baseball, is because there's a lot of schools that aren't baseball schools. And I think for the advice for a young guy, uh, what I've learned is don't get in a hurry of just becoming a head coach. Make sure your your hurry would be to try to get into a great program or a good program or a town that likes baseball. Because I've seen so many of my friends that were much better coaches than me. They got put in, got into a bad spot and was soured in three years and got out of it. And, and so that is the advice I give for, for head coach. Don't get in a hurry of just taking a head coach, uh, head coaching job just to take one. The other thing I think that I've become a lot better at and highly recommend is uh, that I did not know is delegation. And, and, you know, sometimes you become a head coach, you want to control everything. And, and the, if the assistants do not take ownership and you don't allow them to take ownership and give them responsibility – you know, they're, they're not going to have much fun. They're not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to buy in. They're not going to be invested uh, when the head coach is doing everything. So I think if there's anything you can do as a head coach is obviously find assistants that want to learn, but more importantly, give them responsibility, let them run with it. And, and they're going to, they're really going to take off from there. I love that. And, and just to, to echo that statement, uh, our head coach does a great job of that. And, and all three of his assistants feel like we have our own, things to do it's not we're doing an extension of him like we are an extension of him but at the same time he's letting us own whatever area that he's given us and so just to echo that again it's from an assistant point of view that is huge huge from working for a head coach that allows you to do things like that yeah, absolutely absolutely so rick and i've been together rick was a, a player of mine since 91 started for us in, in center field as a sophomore uh, he came back when he was in college playing baseball, he came back in the summers and coached our summer team. And then he he took a head coaching job in northern Kentucky for a year right out of college. He, he'd be the first one to admit it was not a fun situation. And we got a, a teaching. He got we had a, got a teaching opening and got a hold of him. And fortunately, he came up and joined us in, in uh, at Defiance in 99. And so we've been together uh, since 91, all but one year. And, you know, I, I have the title head coach and he has a title of associate head coach, rather, but really we are co-coaches. He, he had, he's, he is in charge as much as I am. And, and then we have a few other former players, our pitching coach. He was a former player. He runs all the pitching now. And he, the more you can delegate, we have a catching guy. Uh, that's, that's very important. I think for, for a head coach is, is to uh, delegate. Uh, absolutely. And it sounds like that you're a guy who is constantly trying to learn the game or constantly trying to better himself. So what's something that you've learned lately that you're really excited about? You know, this is a, this is a good one. I, a lot of these questions I threw out to Rick, and, and he had the nose. Well, first off, we have the new facility. So that's new and exciting. Uh, this will be the first winter we've been in our new facility. Uh, we invested, uh, obviously, we've, we've picked up some things from Driveline that we've been doing for a couple of years. We, we liked a lot of the, their, philo- we liked their philosophy a lot. 
we also uh, we were fortunate enough. We had alumni bought us the hit tracks. Um, oh, so awesome. yeah, so the kids love that. They 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 uh, we got that last spring. So they mainly all use it just to kind of play games on it and that. So we're really excited how we can incorporate and help teach off the hit tracks. We just bought a rap soda. So my pitching coach Eric Sprague is in charge of that, and Man, so awesome yeah, we're going to be experimenting with the the rap soda this winter. Uh, we have the Diamond Kinetics. We've been using the Zep. The uh, Diamond Kinetics is new, so we're we're looking forward to that. So we have a lot of new things we want to try, and that's one thing we we we've constantly always done is try to stay ahead of the curve. Huh? No pun intended, <laughs> Jonathan. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, you know, try things, and it doesn't mean you have to do them all. You know, but you got to try them and see if it works for you for your kids. Another latest one I'm really excited to get into is, you know, have you heard the name Matt Tellerico mm-hmm. from Wright's yeah, Steel Bases? Steel Bases. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 a friend of ours, and uh, we tried to incorporate that a couple of years ago. We didn't spend, we didn't invest enough time, so we tried it, and we went out and we did not steal base in our four scrimmages. We did not steal. We had like one stolen base after two games, so we just flushed it, went back their own way. I just went down and spent eight hours, uh, an entire day with Matt. He did a little clinic with coaches and had some players there this summer. And now I'm really excited. I feel more comfortable with it and, and learning it more. And we're going to try it. We're going to incorporate that in the winter. So that could really have been one of the new things, too, as far as we're, I'm excited to incorporate. But, yeah, no, th- no that's awesome. A hit tracks and a rap soto. There's not a whole lot that a high school kid could want more than that. And, and just to show from your angle – that you guys are willing to try and use some of that, I think shows you know how good of a job that you guys are doing for those kids. Yeah, we've been very we've been very fortunate. Stuff is not cheap, that's for sure. And and we, like I said, we've been really lucky lucky with our alumni. They are our alumni are first class, and they constantly give back. And if they didn't give back, we would be able to do this. Isn't coming out of the athletic department, that's for sure. So we're basically on our own budget. Well, and do you think that they do that because of the culture that you guys have tried to build? Because I'm sure that there are some big leaguers who don't donate anything to you know some of their former programs because of the experiences that they've had yeah i think so i think we hope that's the reason uh that's you know culture is our number one thing in our program and and uh alumni are are number one you know number two i guess you could say but we are we are very involved with our alumni we know everyone the guys have graduated in our program we we touch base i have actually every year from 99 on i have a the uh, text group of each team that we try to reach out to. I have them in a database. I have it on my phone. We actually have an alumni baseball fantasy baseball league uh, that we do. And and I I have them all on our email list, try to keep them updated on that. And and really just, you know, just keeping them involved in the program because they want to, they want to know what's going on. And and obviously a lot of them move away and, and that, and, uh, you know, ownership is important for them. They're the ones that built the program. This bottom line is the the players are the reason uh, that any coach has success, and and your assistant coaches as well. But uh, we try to try to give back to them as much as they give to us. Now, do some of your pro guys come back and work out with you guys in the winter? Uh, yeah, we have had some. Matter of fact, we've had a lot of our college guys uh, do, and especially over Christmas break. Our pro guys mainly do not live around here. Most of them have, have, are moving or living in other cities. Mm-hmm. But the, the ironic part about it, when we do our winter workouts, they usually don't won't do our workout. Our workouts are pretty demanding. <laughs> so so okay. we'll have a couple times. Uh, some of the college guys will come back and they may do a couple days. Very few of them will make it through the whole Christmas break. With they'll decide. I think we'll do our own thing. So uh, 
so we, we are really, we really do push them hard in our winter workouts. Well, you talked about all the different things that you guys are trying now. So what is something that you once thought was true or, or that you once did, but you may have recently changed your mind about and you're not doing it anymore? It's funny you ask that because I was asking uh, Rick and go, what do you, what's it? He goes, I don't know. We can, we've been thinking about this for a few days. And really the only thing that was, as you know, our philosophy of the 90 club is big for us and throwing hard. I think the one thing that we've always believed was true is if you get the 90, you're going to get a D1 scholarship and probably get drafted at some point. I think that is no longer true. I think the 90 is now the 95. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what's happened is I think we were a little ahead of the game in, in teaching velocity. I was fortunate enough to, to uh, speak in, in Anaheim at the ABCA a few years ago and did a presentation, spoke at some other clinics. And, you know, they always talk about, uh, you know, you know, what's more important, location, movement, uh, velocity, command. And, and ours was number one is velocity. Number two is velocity. Number three is velocity. And, and the reason we, we say that is because we've never had a kid that threw 80 to 82 that went on and got a college scholarship. Uh, but we, and, and they may have had great years. We had a kid that went 10 and one with a 180 RA, but he threw 75 mile an hour. He's a lefty. He didn't get any offers, but we've had guys that throw 90 that may only throw a handful of innings and they get, they end up going on to college and playing and, or get a scholarship and soon because they throw hard. And, and so that's always been our philosophy our, is player development. And, and uh, the one way as a pitcher is throw hard and somebody's going to give you a chance. Oh, that makes sense. Now, tell us about a time that you failed and how you overcame that. Well, I have plenty of those as well. I'd like to meet the guy who couldn't answer this question. Well, I had, a, I had a lot of failure early in my life. As I mentioned, if you're talking about individual failures, is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, Okay. Well, first off, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that uh, I, was, I loved basketball. And uh, after my sophomore year, like I said, I was starting as a sophomore part of the season. And then uh, things didn't go well, and I got cut my junior. So there was uh, a rejection. That was something, wow, what the heck? And, and usually the, those reasons are you have to look back at yourself, and that's the reason it happened. And then I was fortunate enough that went to baseball, and then I played three years of baseball, and I got released. So there was another time of failure. All of a sudden, boom, now I'm not good enough for this. In the meantime, I had been, I was in that same, same time frame. I was uh, married and got divorced and had a, had a child all in that time when I was in my early 20s. So I had a lot of failures early in my life. And I think it really does make you a little mentally tougher, you know, when you, when you go through adversity. Uh, luckily, I didn't have any major adversity of, you know, losing a, a parent or a, you know, a family member or something that really matters in life. Uh, but those were some things I think that really maybe drove me uh, and maybe focused me on something and, and coaching ended up where it ended up. Uh, one more thing. Uh, I, I told you that, that there's a couple of questions that I always ask other coaches. And this one is a huge one because I'm constantly trying to learn uh, new things and meet new people. So can you give us, you know, three of your best resources? It could be a person, it could be a book, it could be a website, it could be just anything. So what what are your top three resources that you go to constantly or that have changed your coaching career? Well, we read a lot. We do we we read a lot uh 
as coaches and, 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 uh, and obviously we do a coach of the day every day with our team and that, but the, the, you know, if you're looking at resources, uh, the one that we've used the most in our program, we've been using it for fit is heads up baseball mm-hmm. by Ken Revisa. And, and uh, we go over that book with our team in the off season, chapter by chapter, the mental game. We read uh, the John Gordon series of books, read all those mm-hmm. leadership stuff. I would, you cannot get enough of that. And right now I'm presently reading uh, inside out coaching by Joe Ehrman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, uh, just, you know, things that you can better yourself that you can hopefully transfer that onto your, onto your players and your program. And you mentioned driveline earlier and hit tracks and Rapsodo. And obviously you guys are really innovative in, in all of the different things that you're doing. So maybe we'll have to catch up when this airs and ask you that question then, because it sounds like you guys are, are doing things different week by week. Yeah, I, we, uh, like I said, that's, the rap solo is completely new to us and, and utilizing the hit tracks is totally new to us, to, uh, from the teaching standpoint. So we're really are excited to, uh, to learn, you know, what's going to help our kids. Well, I love that. Well, coach held, thank you so much for, uh, being on the show today. I, I know I, I learned a ton and our listeners will as well. So for those that are wanting to get in touch with you, uh, what are some easy points of contact for you? Well, the best way to get a hold of me is my email. And that is just T as in Tom held at deafcity.org. D E F C I T Y.org. T held at deafcity.org. Perfect. And are you on social media at all? Yes. We uh, have uh, Defiance Baseball Twitter uh, account and also a uh, Fungo 20 is my personal uh, Twitter account. And then obviously my assistant, who's the king of social media, Rick Weaver, has his account. It's just Rick Weaver. So uh, he also has an account. Love it. And I'll link that down in the show notes for you guys so you can go check them out. It, they are a, a lot of fun to follow. And you, you don't see a, t- a lot of high school coaches that put out more uh, consistent information than Defiance does. So, again, Coach L, thank you for being on. And, and is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? I think you hit it all, Jonathan. It was a, a great interview, that's for sure, from the standpoint of the interviewer over the interviewee. So fantastic job, and I, I look forward to listening to your podcast in the future. I love it. Thanks again for being on. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. I would love to get in contact with you to hear your thoughts on the podcast. There are two easy ways to do that. You can email me at jgellner7 at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at AOTC underscore podcast. Also, do you like to share ideas and have conversations with other baseball coaches? Just go to facebook.com and search Ahead of the Curve Coaches to join our group. It's free, so what have you got to lose? If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating so others can find the show. Thanks for listening and have a great week.